Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. There's desperation and anguish. More than 80,000 Afghans have since arrived in America. But this story is still unfolding. I'm Andrea Smartin. In my new podcast, Stranger Becomes Neighbor, we'll find out what happens to these new arrivals in our communities. Who would help our newest neighbors? Follow us at kslpodcast.com, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. In today's episode of Project Recovery... The worst thing that could have happened for me was uh, I got off of parole because I had no leash. I had no... That, you know, there was nothing holding me back. No accountability. From, from my ultimate escape that, that ultimately the, the addict, the, you know, the chaos between my ears, you know, wanted to kill me. And, you know, I, I, I eventually went back to a needle. I eventually went back to methamphetamines. And I lived a really slimy life for the next couple of years. Make sure you listen to the end. Find us on Facebook at Project Recovery. We'll have that and much more coming up. Hey, welcome to Project Recovery, a podcast about addiction, but more importantly, it's about recovery. And it's brought to you by our friends at knowyourscript.org. Uh, they help you know your script when talking to yourself, when talking to your doctor, when talking to loved ones. Because as we've seen so many times on this podcast uh, alone, Dr. Matt, is that people have got into their addiction through a legitimate problem and uh, that started with opioids. Oh, definitely. Um, I think communicating about our prescriptions is becoming the standard. In fact, they've increased the requirements for physicians uh, just in this last month to um, if, if their patients are taking benzodiazepines or opioids where they have to communicate with all the doctors that are prescribing. They have to before they prescribe or they can be get in trouble with their prescription license. And so I think that's pretty cool. It's not just for us. It's for them. Everybody needs to be talking about it, asking questions. Um, don't be shy. That's the biggest thing. Just don't be shy. So normally in this first uh, segment, we talk a little bit about my recovery and what's going on. And I had something sort of planned for you, but you said something and then my mind went, hey, let's see what this goes. Okay. <laughs> oh, great. Do you think opioids are a legitimate villain? No. Because I think a lot of people and who, you know, and understandably hate opioids because of mm -hmm. the damage that they have caused. Right. But is it a legitimate villain? Well, I think it's a tool. And when used properly in the right context with the right supervision, it's a useful tool. And a lot of people have benefited and necessarily so from their use of, of opioids. However, I definitely empathize with anybody out there who's had their life turned upside down or a loved one's life turned upside down by opioids. I understand that. But it is a tool. And I think in the past, there just hasn't been enough oversight in how that tool is used. And I do think it could be used a lot less. We, we are developing alternatives, including things like meditation for pain management and things like that. So I, I see it as a tool um, that has been mismanaged. The reason I ask that is because, you know, when we post stuff on social and we do episodes that have to deal with opioid uh, abuse, uh, you know, a lot of times people paint it as the villain. Mm -hmm. uh, and then we'll put stuff on Facebook and someone will say that the opioids ruined my life. And then to juxtapose yeah. that, I'll have some guy on who will say, hey, if it wasn't for opioids, 
I wouldn't be here today. I couldn't move. Mm-hmm. I couldn't do this. And so, you know, when you go out there and you vilify opioids, you know, understand that there is a place in the medical world for opioids. Right. And so I think what you said it and you said it best is that there is other alternatives. But if used correctly, it really is uh, beneficial to those who need. Yeah, I think it it definitely can be, and and that goes back to stressing our sponsor's message, which is know your script. You have to you have to speak up. You have to talk about it. You have to educate yourself. We live in the world of Google. And so Dr. Google no, knows everything. Nobody has the excuse of saying, I don't know anything anymore. Like at least start with looking stuff up yourself and then starting to ask questions. Maybe do a little fact checking. Listen to this. My mom and I love her. She's, she's the strongest woman I know. And yeah, she is amazing. She, she is. But there isn't a week goes by that she doesn't send me something that's on YouTube or <laughs> yeah. something's Googled that is going to solve the world's problems. And you're like, uh. and I'm going, mom, it's only got nine views. I don't think you and eight other people are on the inside track on this. Right, you exactly. know, so maybe we should probably. And I'm not saying that there's not people who have an inside track on stuff, and that yeah. there's not good information to be had on the internet. Well, but you should probably check your sources, yeah, know and, your sources, and, and, and for sure. do a do a little little research yourself. But so many times in today's society, society, we just take what is given in front of us and run with it. And I think that's kind of what happened with the opioid epidemic in the beginning. Is the doctors were prescribing them? We didn't know that much about them. We and, just said okay. Yeah, the doctor yeah. prescribed it. And so so it can't be bad. And so I think that led a little to what's going on. Oh, it for sure did. And I think physicians um, maybe didn't understand the, the addiction potential necessarily in the beginning and or assumed we would, as consumers, manage manage ourselves appropriately. And so I, what we realize now is it takes sort of a community of people working together to utilize these medications properly. Benzodiazepines are another one in in the psychiatric world that are prescribed for anxiety and they are quite effective but can't have a high addiction potential. So we need to we need to know our script. We need to know uh that we are ultimately the consumer of our own health care and so the responsibility starts and stops with us, I think. All right, now we hashed that out, so we've got a little time left. And right. So I'm going to remember those stories when you were a kid where you can pick your own ending. Oh, yeah, uh, choose your own adventure. Yeah, yes. so I'm going to let you choose the adventure. Oh, great. We can either talk about the Wild Wild West, which is Vegas, which I just got back from this uh-huh. weekend, uh-huh. or me always feeling like there's going to be another shoe dropping. Vegas, baby. Okay, so here's the deal. So I went down to Vegas with my girlfriend and a bunch of friends. It's kind of like this six-couple group that we travel with. Okay. They're the same couple that I went to um, San Diego with right out of rehab. Oh, right. And the ones that I went on the cruise before the pandemic started. And just for the listeners, we got some fun pictures from you down in Vegas. Yeah. Big party going on. Lots of fun. Everywhere Casey goes, it's always fun. It, it was crazy. So we're at this big pool. It's called the Circa Pool. And How they, big was that screen? A hundred feet screen. Oh, my goodness. And, and, and just sat out there. And I'll tell you what. It looked like it was a happening sober place. Sober people watching is the best time ever. <laughs> it really is. Cause, you know, because you see people. And I'll tell you what. Um I've got daughters, and I came back, and I called my ex-wife, and I go, hey, our daughters don't have any of those swimsuits where their butt cheeks hang out, because that's all you saw down in Vegas. And it didn't yeah. matter if you had a butt that should be seen in the light of day. It, it was For out there. For some reason, people don't manage that one very well. Either. Yeah, I was like, wow, this is oh, yeah. this, well, there it is. Yeah, it is. And so, uh, but I wanted to talk about, because uh, Vegas has now legalized marijuana. Right. Mm-hmm. 
Well, it's, the whole state, right? Nevada? Yeah, yeah Nevada. State, yeah. And so this was my first time down there. And to let you guys know, it doesn't end with me doing marijuana. I'm still <laughs> sober 100%. Um, but we were walking along Fremont Street. And for those of you who don't know, Fremont Street is kind of like old Vegas. Right. They've got a zip line that goes down the middle. They've got street performers, restaurants. and it, it's They're just, trying to capture the old Vegas feel. Yeah, right? and, yeah. And so it's really cool. And great people watching there, too. But it was like walking through a Grateful Dead concert. Really? I mean, there was so much weed on the streets being smoked out in public, which I don't think is legal. But I don't know the rules on that. I think you're right, though. I think you're supposed to. Yeah, do it in the confinement of your own right. home. Uh-huh. And then the, the hotels don't want you smoking weed in their rooms. Right. And so, I mean, it, nobody really thought this through. Well, I think they did. It was the dollar signs that won the conversation. Yeah, probably. But it was, I was amazed of how much was actually going on. Wow. And, you know, to see, you know, families walking through with their kids and just people smoking joints and blunts and, and, and all this. And I was like, huh. Yeah. But once again, I held strong and, and I don't even have well, that let desire. Let me ask you this, though, because every once in a while I'll get a question from somebody who listens to our, our show and they'll say, you know, Casey sounds so optimistic. Doesn't he ever struggle with, like, the temptation and here, this is a great question because I think, I think with alcohol, you've really put that in its place and not that it's not something to always manage and keep your eye on, but I don't think that's been a big temptation for you. But here's a different substance that could get you, you know, intoxicated and feeling different and, it, and it's not your DOC. Mm-hmm. Um, so is that sort of tempting? I mean, you could go down to Vegas and nobody's going to notice who you are and, if you know, if everybody's doing it, like, is that a temptation to kind of get a little? I've never loose? been tempted by marijuana since I've been sober. Not once. Never once. Not even in that setting. Not even in that setting, because to me, it adds nothing of value to my life. That's right? a good way it, to look it, at it. Nothing of value. Nothing good would come from me doing that. And all I would see is the heartache that it would cause. I couldn't do this podcast in good conscience. Without, without telling you if I had done it, because I would feel like a fraud yeah. and a failure. And, and and I'm not saying that I don't think weed is better than alcohol or vice versa or whatever it is. That's mm-hmm. not mine to decide. But I know in my life, in my recovery, it makes no sense for me to do that. Well, I like that's maybe a great way to just live your life and make decisions. How You know, a decision you're going to make. In what way does this add to, you know, or take away from the quality of my life? And I've said it on the podcast before, but we've got a lot of new listeners. Uh, uh, There's been two times that I thought a beer would be good. And it was right out of recovery. It was on the first trip with that same group down in San Diego. Mm -hmm. One, I was sitting on the beach with my girlfriend. Mm -hmm. The sun was setting. The waves were crashing up on the beach, going back and forth. And I thought to myself... This is what beer is designed for. Yeah. This is when I should have a beer. <laughs> right. But I was quick to remember what I learned in recovery, and they say play the tape for 24 hours. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I know for myself that if I were to have that beer, it wouldn't stop at one. Never has before. Nope. And then uh, two nights later, so I didn't have a beer. Didn't, right. And it was a brief thought, mm-hmm. but I already had that big conversation in my head. Two nights later, we go to a Padres game. This is uh, baseball. Yeah. We're up there watching down. The sun's setting again. It's beautiful weather out there. And up comes this guy. Peanuts. Ice cool beer. Peanuts. 
And, you know, all of a sudden right. people are passing peanuts and beer across me. And I'm thinking. <laughs> right I'm, under I'm, your nose. I'm huh? getting tested. I'm yeah. like, but this is what beer also was designed for. Baseball. There's nothing more American than peanuts, baseball, they, and beer. They go together. Right? Yeah. I mean, that's, I mean that's, that was their game plan. Like, they were sitting around and we go, we got peanuts, we got a baseball, and we got beer. Oh, yeah, they know what they're doing. Yeah, this, I mean, this, <laughs> this, this is the perfect storm. Right. And so those are the only two times really? in my recovery that it felt really tempting. Th- that I thought, huh, but I won't do it. Because I know where it will lead. Because I already know that if I was going to be drinking at a baseball game, I'd have three beers before we got there. I'd have two before they came to me and offered me it. And then I would have three afterwards. And then I would try to talk the whole party into keeping the party going. And you know what sounds good? Let's go do some karaoke. You know what I mean? And I would try to talk everybody into going and doing that. So I'm very good at playing the tape forward. And knowing where it ends. I think that's an excellent skill. I hope people are listening, kind of picking up on that. Number one, asking yourself, does this add to the quality of my life, whatever I'm about to do? Number two, play that tape 24 hours in advance. That's a great way, you know, delayed gratification. What do I want more? You know, how do I see things in the next 24 hours? I think those are great skills. And to be honest, um, I am so grateful and thankful for the life that I have right now. And I could tell you, September 3rd, 2018, laying on my back, blood running down my face, looking up at the sirens, I could have never imagined this. Yeah, I never imagined that if I fought and gave it everything I got, I could be here today. And today I am. And so I am so grateful for that. I'm grateful for this podcast. I'm grateful for you. I'm grateful for, all, for our guests and everything that that I'm that I'm being blessed with. And and it truly is a blessing. And 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 so I I'm just grateful. And so it's not worth it for me to risk it. Yeah. Well, I think it goes back to what we've learned you and I from some of our wonderful guests and that is that you have to put your recovery above everything else in your life in order to keep everything in your life, mm-hmm. right? And so if you put a recovery above everything, then everything else remains yours. But once you don't, once you start to, you know, manage that in a different way you can lose it all you know it's like that thing we talked about two weeks ago i gave up one thing for everything now i give up one thing and i get everything did i say that right it sounded pretty good. Okay, because sometimes my head gets in front of my mouth and it doesn't make sense. Well, the, the Caseyisms when they flow. I saw somebody say that on Facebook. Man, this episode was full of Caseyisms. I'm glad you guys are speaking my language. We and are. We've adapted to you. There we go. And I, we've got a great guest today. I've known him since I've been in the recovery world. He's helped out so many. His name is Micah Niles. He works for Steps Recovery. We're going to find out about his story coming up next. You're listening to Project Recovery. I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. In October of 1985, a woman named Cherie Warren left work at a busy Salt Lake City office. To meet her estranged husband at a downtown auto dealership. She never made it home. Cherie's car surfaced weeks later in Las Vegas. In the parking lot of a hotel casino. No one knows how it got there. Strange. It was strange. Both Cherie's estranged husband and her boyfriend raised suspicion for investigators. I kind of thought that he might have done something. But no arrests were ever made. In Cold Season 3, we dig into double lives, make new connections in the case, and examine the difficulty raised by reasonable doubt. We want answers just as much as anyone else. They have creeps like that now, too, so nothing's changed. That's the new Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie. Now available anywhere you get your podcasts.
Hey, welcome back to Project Recovery. I'm Casey Scott. That is Dr. Matt Woolley. He's got his head buried in his phone because he's a clinical psychologist. You're probably doing some research, right? No, I was trying to respond to my kid as fast as I could before you started, but you just jumped right in. Is there something crucial? Is there, maybe I can help. Because, you know, you do so much giving on this show back to the community. Maybe I okay. can, maybe I'll I can throw, give you some help. I'll throw it your way. Yeah. Uh, my nephew mm-hmm. is um, in, in, a, in a play this weekend, Shrek. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And my, my sister-in-law has some extra tickets, and I'm trying to make sure my kids know that they can go see Cousin Noah in his play. So here's what you do. You send her a text and go, hey, I don't care what you're doing this weekend, but between 6 and 8, we're going to see Cousin Noah at Shrek. Because why? Family time first. Okay, there you go. That's you know what I mean? Answer. That's what I'll say. There you go. He's not going to say that. Hey, so our guest today is Micah Niles. Now, I ran into you right out of recovery because we are both kind of doing the similar jobs for different recovery centers. And we're going to find out more about that in just a second. But Dr. Matt always likes to find out a little bit about who Micah is and where Micah grew up. So where does the story begin? Yeah. First of all, thank you for having me. I'm absolutely honored to be here. You know, the conversation you guys are having and, you know, spreading the word that you guys are spreading is, uh, is, is absolutely amazing. So I'm honored and I appreciate you guys inviting me. Um, you know, my story really starts when I was, when I was a young boy, I was eight when things kind of, kind of shifted for me. Um, I grew up here in Utah. I grew up with my mom. I had two sisters and things were just fine until third grade. Um, you know, we, we, for the first time, moved from a stable environment, same school, same friends. Everything that you knew. Everything I knew. You know, I was I was a Ninja Turtle, you know, and everything <laughs> was good, right? Uh, and, you know, my mom working multiple jobs trying to support a family, uh, you know, we ended up moving to another city. And for the first time in my life, in my short life, I experienced um, not being accepted, right, and just not fitting in, not knowing where I belong, not knowing how to act, how to interact with myself as well as with the world. Um, and you know, I got bullied. I got chased home from school, and I think part of that was I got along really well with the girls. I had two sisters, and I, you know, I got along really well with the girls, and I just could not figure out how to make friends with the guys, and that's all I wanted. Now, Doctor Matt, you're in a probably chime in here and say you know for third grade i mean that's that's a pretty crucial time in our young lives right and to feel those kind of feelings yeah you're you're in a pre-adolescent and you're really starting down that path of accepting you know you said you didn't feel accepted and that's sort of the name of the game uh striving for competency is a phrase i use a lot you're trying to find your place what you're good at and so making friends is a big part of that and uh, you know kids survive moves but that's kind of a tough age to do it, and, and a lot of kids struggle fi- reestablishing that. So, yeah, yeah I, I can remember, see how that was a seminal experience for you. I mean, I've got a kid that's in third grade right now, and, uh, you know, I remember being in third grade. Uh-huh. And you, social is your currency, you know, kind right. of where you stand, you know. And you want to find – it's the beginning of really trying to, to identify – who you are and what you're good at. So am I I an athlete? Am I an artist? Am I a musician? You know, am I cool or am I not cool? And so often you, uh, unfortunately, because you're just a kid, you let your social group determine that for you. You know, like they tell you if you're cool and they tell you if you're, if they pick you for the team and, and when you don't get picked and when you don't get told you're cool, man, that that's tough. I talk to my kid. I go, hey, what'd you do at recess today? He goes, well, I just kind of hung by myself. I go, why? He goes, well, because Levi, he's a sporty dad. And I go, he's a what? 
He's a sporty. That and that's the, what he calls the kids that play the, the, the sports, sports, you yeah. know. And he goes, sometimes Levi will hang with me and we'll play some games. But then other times he wants to go do the sports. And so I just kind of chill by myself, Dad. And I go, okay. I go, why don't you try that? And he goes, I have. It just, it's, not my, it's not my deal, Dad. And I was like, okay, yeah. cool. So you say in third grade you were more – friendly with the girls because you probably associated with them better yeah yeah i mean it was it was just easier conversations for me um you know and and you know piggybacking off what you said doc it, i i i experienced being a chameleon for the next couple of years you know try, just trying to figure out trying to to really just fit in um you know after a series of moves and and unfortunately that wasn't the only move from third grade to fifth grade we moved in fifth grade. I went to three different schools in the same year. Um, so it was just a series of moves. Well, was this around. sort of an economic issue? Mom trying to provide. Yeah. You mom know? was doing her best. It was just different. so many families are caught in that, sure, right? Yeah. Sure. Yeah. I mean, single mom, three kids, you know, uh, me and my sisters in a lot of ways we raised ourselves because mom was working late. Um, and you know, we did our best. She did her best. Um, may I ask where your dad was? Uh, my dad was uh, an alcoholic on the streets somewhere. He 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 passed away many years later. I never met my real father. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. I mean, me too. <laughs> is what it is. So you moved a bunch until about fifth grade, yeah. and as you said by your own words, uh, you were kind of a chameleon, trying to figure out who you fit in with and what was kind of your scene. I most definitely was, and and. In fifth grade, we moved to we moved back here to Salt Lake, and we moved to Rose Park. Um, and I, uh, right across the street, and this was a pivotal point in my story. Right across the street, there were some some guys that were older. They were all teenagers, fifteen, sixteen, and they would always play football in the street. And I was a I was a sporty, right? Like that's what I did. And I remember standing on my front porch while they were playing football, throwing my little Nerf ball in the air, just praying that they would invite me to come play. Um, and they did. And I, you know, I remember feeling accepted and feeling a part of for the first time in a long time. Um, and uh, fortunately for me, I found some acceptance, but unfortunately they were just the wrong kind of but kids. But you were fifth grade? I was in fifth grade. So you were like 11, 10 or 11, yeah. 10. And so uh, they're 15. Yeah. So that's, yeah. that's kind of a tough mix, yeah. right? They were my sister's age. So mm. both my sisters are older and they were all... I mean, they were all in in uh, either, you know, they were they were all in high school. They were all going to to West High, and and I was in elementary school. And um, you know, it it was the dynamic. Looking back, was was weird, but I was like their little brother. I eventually just evolved into you know the the their little crony. Um, and but I didn't care because I had finally found some 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 you know some friends, um, and they were all you know. Doing drugs, drinking, um, stealing, uh, you know, some were gang members. You know, I mean, it was, it was, you know, they were the wrong crowd. Um, but that didn't matter to me. It just absolutely didn't matter because I'd finally just arrived. <laughs> um, and then I, I eventually, uh, started to entertain the thoughts of what they were doing, which was smoking pot and drinking. Um, and at the age of 10 was the first time that I smoked weed. And I'll never forget the feeling that I got, everything just kind of washed away. Like I remember that day very well and everything just washed away. All my worries, all my problems just, just went away. And I, I don't know if it was a conscious decision, but I knew at that point that that was something that I was going to do as much as I possibly could. 
You know, Micah, I wish you were the first person to say something similar to that on this podcast. But unfortunately, there's so many people who got into their addiction because the first time they tried alcohol, the first time they tried opioids, the first time they tried meth, marijuana, whatever it was, they had that same calming feeling that came over them. For the first time, they weren't anxious. They weren't. They Yeah, it's that stress relief. I mean, uh, a lot of times we don't even realize, and especially at age 10, you don't have the self-awareness to realize that you're walking around stressed or I think maybe in your case, walking around feeling different or weird or unaccepted. And so a substance can initially, you know, give you a biological relief of that. You know, oh, it doesn't change your environment or any of your problems. It just compounds them. But you don't know that. And especially at 10. And I think a lot of listeners might be like, oh, 10, he was smoking weed that early. But that's not that uncommon, especially for a kid who is hanging with older kids, so older siblings or older kids in the neighborhood. A lot of times kids are 9, 10, 11, they're getting introduced. Nowadays, weed is probably the most common thing that kids are getting introduced I to. I mean, I was 14 when I first started drinking. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, was Yeah, 14 is uh, really common. Any parent who's listening, if you have a junior high age kid, you need to be talking about drugs and alcohol because – that's common. We say talk to your kids about drugs and alcohol before somebody else does. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, Micah was unfortunately was getting talked to by boys that were twice his age. Yeah. And, you know, uh, interestingly enough, the, it, it gets it, it gets a little weirder because uh, I quickly found out that my mom smoked pot and my mom was an alcoholic. And my mom's in recovery today. She celebrates 13 years this year. Uh, shout out to my mom. But, you know, uh uh, when I found out that my mom smoked weed, that conversation ended up happening that I was smoking weed and my mom invited me to get high with her because I was running the streets with these older kids and she would rather me stay home and get high with her if that's what I was going to do. And so at a young age, my mom was the cool mom. You know, she, she I, I would come home from school and I would do my chores and my mom would, you know, give me a joint. And, uh, you know, and, and so it, it it just compounded you know some of the the ideas that I had using also eventually yeah yeah they they eventually all I mean we all uh, we all started partying you know we were just party kids my mom you know my mom's new husband my stepdad was uh, in a rock band and they would be gone on the weekends for their for his gigs and and we would have the party house and all my older friends would bring all their friends over and we'd have you know parties at the house and it was just normal you know when I was a kid it was just normal that's just I, I didn't know anything else. You know, and I think that's so important to talk about is that to him, that's normal. So his, you know what I mean? How he doesn't know any different. Well, I mean, that's where we learn what normal is, is at home, right? I mean, you learn what's normal for almost every type of interaction from your family, from your parents. You know, what do we do at home? That's what we do. Um, So, yeah, that would totally shift your mindset as a young person. You're not even a teenager yet. And that just feels like the norm. So, yeah. After the first time you smoked weed at age 10, how quickly did it escalate to other substances? I was drinking alcohol, I would imagine, within that same year, uh, within a few months of, of, of smoking weed. Um, and, you know, these guys, you know, to no fault of theirs, they thought it was funny to get me drunk, you know, because I was just this little, you know, kid. And, um, you know, it quickly progressed into LSD and eating mushrooms. You know, I, I remember... I remember being on acid in seventh grade uh, at school. Um, wow. You know, it was just you know it was so just it escalated with that it escalated to hard hard drugs fairly sure. quickly. Yeah, 
Yeah. And before I knew it, I was, you know, I had tried methamphetamines, cocaine, heroin. I mean, I, I, I had been introduced to all of it um, as a teenager, for sure. And how was your high school years? Was it, I mean, did you attend? Did you get in trouble? Well, uh, I, I mean, even junior high. I mean, you're yeah. not even in junior high yeah. yet and you're starting to. Junior high was interesting because uh, I would, I was the kid, my reputation in junior high was I was the kid that always had weed because my, I, I, I stole weed from my parents, um, from my mom and my stepdad. They, you know, they, they, they had weed and, and I would steal it from them and I was always the kid at school that had weed. And so that was my popularity that was your currency yeah exactly that was i i then found a a form of of currency if you will in in school because i was the cool kid that had weed what happened to your athletics you said you were sporty uh my my dedication to athletics uh uh diminished but i was you know i played little league football i would go to practice stoned you know basketball and football were always my things and i i excelled in those sports uh, actively, but I didn't, I didn't, I didn't pursue them. I didn't do them for school. You know, I, I, I didn't so pursue the, them like I would. You, you didn't try out for the school team? Or? No, no, I was a stoner. You know, I was just a stoner. I so, was, so in a way that potential got replaced by being a stoner. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Because you're a tall guy. How tall are you? I'm six five. Yeah, so I mean, yeah. you're kind of built for those kind of sports. Yeah, yeah, Play wide receiver yeah. or a strong forward on the basketball team, stuff like that. You got it. That's exactly yeah. what I, what I was, and uh, you know, and I was good. I just it just wasn't it wasn't as important to me because I quickly found out in in using at a very young age. I quickly found out that I used differently than other people too. So, you know, my buddies, if they didn't have weed, they didn't smoke weed, right? You know, these guys, if I didn't have weed, I was stealing my mom's pipe and scraping it for resin and smoking it. I was, I was a different kind of user from a very young age. I had to be stoned all the time or things weren't right in my world. Did you reflect on that at that time or is that only looking back? that you Looking back. That? I mean, it was just you kind of normal for me. Looking back, I was like, oh, man, I, I remember normal you know whatever a normal user is but you know somebody who just you know occasionally smoke pot at those, at those ages that's the, that's the norm it's like kids will smoke on the weekend sure. or if they have sure. it if they go to a party and there's beer sure. um but they're not waking up thinking where am i going to get my su- my stuff today for sure i remember sitting at a table and having cocktails with friends and then we'd get up and go to a movie or a concert and they'd walk away and there would be a half beer on the table I was like, "What kind of psycho leaves a half beer on the table?" You know, that's not that's right. not that's not normal. Well, you know what I mean. But it yeah, is, normal, it is but, normal. But it wasn't normal for me. That's that's that. And so when you mindset, say that, that yeah. was I have the same brain yeah. set. Yeah. So you're so you're you're hard drugs in seventh grade. What yeah. about What about grades? Let's stick, let's. Ooh. I just I'm curious how yeah. how this was a <clears throat> so social life. You found your calling. You're the stoner kid. Mm-hmm. You always are holding, so you're very mm-hmm. popular. Mm-hmm. Uh, your motivation to really dedicate yourself to sports dropped off, even mm-hmm. though you still liked sports. What about school? Uh, school was the last thing on my mind. I would go to school to meet up with my friends. It was a social, social event for me. I would go to meet up with my friends, and we would slough. I mean, it was a pretty much everyday event. Um, you know, I... I I did not attend school. I did not take school seriously. School was a place to meet girls and to meet up with my buddies so we could go get high. Yeah. For sure. So the grades were just Fs. Uh, there was one I would I would imagine there was one year where I was lucky to get a D in any class. Mm-hmm. My mom was always showing up. I also 
I also fell into um, the the reputation and the role of, of a fighter. Uh, I used to get in a lot of fights when I was a kid, and I think that stemmed from being bullied and then growing up with these older kids and kind of seeing their culture. And, and as I grew, I realized that maybe, you know, I remember the first fight that I won, and, and, I, and I ran with that because I realized that I was athletic and I, I knew how to fight. And so then it just it just progressed into – another piece of the reputation puzzle that's another thing that i adopted uh to to fit in and for young boys to feel physically powerful is very important actually it's important to feel physically powerful and there are healthy ways to have that happen (laughs) and then there's the unhealthy ways and uh somebody who's been bullied has anger and rage inside of them that nobody can understand unless you've been bullied and so by the time you grew you, you, I guess you found an outlet for that anger from being bullied. Sure, yeah. sure. And and I, I don't want to, I don't want to, you know, blame anybody, you know, or, or you know, I don't know how to pass blame on that. I just know that for me, when I when I ran into that experience of winning that first fight, um, I did, I never let anybody mess with me again and even went out of my way to pick fights yeah and and i think on this show uh, and and in psychology in general we have to make a distinction between reasons and excuses Mm -hmm. right and we can't ever understand something if we don't understand the reasons that things happen and so i think that's kind of where we're going uh sometimes people will say well that's an excuse to continue to do it and that's not what we're after. I think what you're saying is it's regrettable that you were this young kid who his identity was I'm a fighter and a stoner. I mean, that's not really a badge of honor that you wear anymore. Yeah, I like that. Reasons and excuses. Um, you know, it, it that was that was my evolution. Um, you know, and so when I was um, 15, I believe I was in ninth grade. And uh, this is kind of where the story turns to a little bit different direction. I well, then let me stop you right yeah. there, because what we'll do is we'll come back. We'll hear more of Mike and Niall's story. You're listening to Project Recovery right here. It's a KSL podcast. Hey, welcome back to Project Recovery. Now, Micah, you said this is when the story takes a different turn. Up to this point, it's been pretty crazy so far. I mean, I, I mean, for lack of better terms, I mean, you did acid in seventh grade in junior high. Uh, you started hanging out with high school kids when you were 10. Uh, you're smoking pot with your mom. But this is when it gets a little crazy, you said. Yeah. So this is where, you know, I being a pothead, being a stoner, you know, knowing that I had a different kind of itch for life than most people. Um, there was a day where I didn't have any. I didn't have any drugs and I wasn't, you know, uh, that wasn't okay in my world at the time. Uh, A friend of mine and I, we went and broke into a car. Uh, We stole a checkbook and with my school ID, I cashed a check for $40 at a bank. Uh, And I put in the memo line for babysitting because I didn't know what else to put. And a couple months later, a detective showed up at my house um, and arrested me and took me to detention center for third degree felony for check fraud. Um, and that is where my criminal career kind of started. Uh, I, I ended up going to DT, like I said, and then from there it was a series of group homes, observation assessment, genesis, wilderness programs. I mean, you, you kind of name it, and, and, and I'd been there because every time I was released, I would go right back to my friends. I would go right back to what I knew. And that only enhanced my reputation as a bad boy, you know, and, and, and I, I adopted that and, and, uh, and rode with that. You know, because it it just 
some way, somehow, it just gave me that feeling of fulfillment um, and acceptance. So, you know, fast forward through high school. High school was a series of, of lockup facilities. Um, you know, I'd be out for a little bit. I went to Granite High School. And, uh, you know, it's just, again, I didn't take it seriously. I was either on the run from youth corrections. There was a time where I slept in one of my friend's um, Jeeps in the back of his Jeep every day at school because I couldn't go to school because the officers were looking for me. And, the, you know, I mean, it was just, uh, you know, I, I was just that kid. And, you know, when I turned 18, I was released from youth, youth corrections. And um, before my graduating class actually graduated, so they would have graduated in May of 2001 and in April – a friend of mine decided, uh, a buddy of mine, him and I decided we were going to uh, steal a car and we were going to go and start a new life in Las Vegas. And so I stole my girlfriend's car. Uh, we were on our way to Vegas and we got pulled over in St. George. And uh, we got in a high-speed chase. We wrecked the vehicle. We jumped out. We tried to run. We got arrested, uh, went to jail. And because of my juvenile record, um, I was sentenced to go to the Utah State Prison and do a program called Diagnostics. And back then it was a program where, you know, you, you go, they do a series of evaluations to figure out if you need to be in prison or if or if there's a program or something else that might be better suited for you. And I wasn't there very long before I ran into somebody in, in the prison uh, that, you know, him and I had a, you know, quote unquote street beef. You know, we didn't like each other from from the outside. And we got in a fight. I was immediately sent back down to my judge, and my judge sentenced me to prison. Um, So, you know, here I am, this young kid who had ran through the juvenile system, you know, you know, full-on drug addict, uh, and now I'm in prison. And from there, it it was, you know, released from prison, violate, go back on a violation. I was released from prison again. I stole another car gotten another high-speed chase, wrecked another vehicle, was sentenced back to prison, got out after a few years, and um, and I was on the run from parole again because I was doing drugs. I mean, it was just the same cycle. At that time, I was arrested for um, a possession of a firearm by a convicted felon, and I was sentenced to federal prison. And I got out of federal prison March 22nd of 2010, uh, and... And I, I, you know, I wish I could say that that was kind of the end of the roller coaster, but it just wasn't. I mean, that's a lot. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm exhausted listening. Yeah, to that. that's I, a I lot. Mean, we're yeah. exhausted listening to it. How exhausting was it living that life? I, I once again, I, I adapted. You know, I was, a, I was a chameleon. I was good at fitting in. But let's. So, you know, I don't know if if the listeners. I think they probably are. They've picked up on this, and we've chatted a little bit off the air today. You strike me as sort of an insightful, reflective person mm-hmm. at this point in your life, yeah. right? You have Thank good you. insights. Yeah, I mean, you had some really neat ideas that we've talked about off the air. And and what was going on? Like, was it just the drugs or was there something about being young? Like, like, why weren't you learning? Like two high-speed chases, one yeah. maybe more yeah. than enough. You did two. <laughs> like the first one didn't work out. Yeah. Multiple stints in prison. Multiple stints in prison. Like, yeah. was there a... What was your thought process? Was it like, I'm going to be a better criminal this time? Or was there ever a, a moment of contrition where you thought, man, I shouldn't be doing this? It like, sounds like there wasn't much thinking at all. N- there wasn't. Well, you know, every time, I can honestly say every time I was in prison, my intention on getting out of prison, my intention was to do good. My intention was to get out, 
not go back to that life. My, I had every intention on, on getting a job and building my life because I go back to that eight-year-old little boy and I remember being a Ninja Turtle and, and at my core, I was not that person. At my core, I was, you know, this soft, emotional, you know, kid. Um, and so I when had, you were pulled out of your life yeah. of, you know, wild life and you, you were sitting in prison, you really did think, man, I want to be different. I want to be like that Ninja Absolutely. Turtle again. Uh, well, and, 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 and I wanted to be successful. I always knew, you know, and, and success at the time was monetary, you know, I mean, you know, that's what equated success to me. But also I wanted to have a family. I always wanted to have kids. I, you know, I, I just wanted to be, I just wanted to be normal, you know? Um, but the reality of it was, is every time I would get out of prison, the only thing I knew was, was, was my life. The only thing I knew. And, um, you know, and, and it goes back to, you know, in prison, it's like, you're, you're a big fish in a small pond and you get out and you're a small fish in a big pond. And the, the, you know, just the idea of, of taking the baby steps that it would take to get where I wanted to be in life and be successful was, was daunting. It was a daunting task. And it was so much easier to just give myself permission to drink that first time or smoke weed that first time. And that always spiraled into using drugs. And I was an IV meth user, you know, that was the ultimate escape for me. If I can get, you know, I don't know. No, you can, no, you yeah. can say whatever you I mean, want. I, I, I shot up meth for the first time when I was, uh, when I was, I was 22 years old when I first shot it, but I had been smoking it and snorting it for many years before that. So when I shot it up for the first time, it was just that ultimate escape. Reality didn't matter because it was just this new world of, of freedom. And, and I don't know how else to explain it other than I had no responsibilities. I answered to nobody and, and I could do whatever I wanted. Uh, and, and, and not only was it the ultimate freedom, but it was the ultimate excuse for me to not be where I wanted to be too. Cause I was just a, I was just a loser from prison. that was a drug addict, you know? And so, um, so the behavior fed the mantra, right? Sure. So you're like, and that's that there's so much power in, in our self-talk and how, how we think about ourselves and how we talk to ourselves about ourselves because we we have a hard time engaging in behavior that violates our self-concept. And so if your self-concept is positive at the core, you have a hard time doing self-destructive things. You're mostly going to choose healthy behaviors. If yeah. you're but if you're if your self-concept is negative, then it's really hard to violate that self-concept mm-hmm. by doing positive behaviors. You're going to definitely feel that pull back to self-destruction and it sounds like that was what was going on for you time and time again. Sure. Now I want to also ask, like you're a young guy, you're 18 years old when you first come out of your first stint and all that. Were there not programs to try to help you outside? Like, cause that's the recidivism problem is a person goes into like a state hospital, for example, or they go into prison, for example, and they, they have that structure there and they have all that help 24 hour support. A lot of people get encouraged and feeling good and then they come right back to the environment yeah. that that helped create the problems in the first place. Were there no transitional programs for you? No, um, no, and 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 again, this is one of those reasons not ex, you know not excuses things. You know, I I I can't blame the justice system, but I will say that I was required to take classes that was that were very hard to take seriously because they didn't re- really relate to most of us, and we were just expected to get out get a job within the first 30 days, 
continue to report and not use drugs and alcohol. Now, I don't want to throw anyone under the bus because I, too, have taken those classes. You know, when you get a DUI, you have to. And I'm going to tell you right now, the most important part of those classes getting your name the signature the, <laughs> no is that, that you pay for them oh that you pay uh, for them. i mean yeah, i mean sure. to, truth be told that's what it is yeah you know you pay for them and then you go in there and you can sit there well, i think they're based on old-fashioned outmoded uh ideas that you like you said if you have a job and you don't use life's going to be good and maybe it isn't the state's responsibility to for us but i kind of feel like in some ways it is because they're the ones putting you in that position. I I think there are nowadays better programs. There's drug courts and other and stuff things. like yeah, that, that that we've talked that about on out. the show. Yeah. Um. I I know it's and and we are talking about a reason. I get the fact that it's not an excuse. We we can't say that it's their fault that you came back out and hundred percent. But man, we can do better as a society by helping people who come out on that sort of positive high. You're trying to change that self-concept. You're feeling like, I want to do it. Like you said, I, I want to be a good person. I want to be a productive person. I want to be, it sounded like a traditional person with a, a wife and a family sure. and a job. But that's so hard for so many people to, like when you just hit the streets and you have no support, uh, it's not like you had a family that was modeling that behavior to you, But right? the prison isn't the only place that we're having that same problem. We're having that same problem in the recovery centers all across the state sure. where people yeah. come out and they're in this pink cloud. Because when you're in a recovery center, for most part, everything's hunky-dory. You're doing what you're supposed to. You're working out. You're getting fed. And, and you're and, and, and you're like Micah. You're thinking, when I get out, this is going to be good. And then you go back to the same situation that put you in it and i think the best recovery centers account for that or at least they try to they, they try have, to plan an aftercare they, they have aftercare plans and programs uh you have to work them sober houses and whatever it is things, and so yeah. i think they are doing it yeah. better but i want to get back to micah and his story uh you're fresh out of federal prison yep fresh out of federal prison uh you know i i i found um yeah i i the way that I got off of parole from from being uh, out of federal prison was uh, there there was a thing years ago, and I don't know if it's still around, but they came out with a thing called Spice, and Spice was this synthetic marijuana, I guess. Uh, and I remember being in the halfway house, and we would smoke Spice every day because you didn't test positive, and I was stoned, you know. Like I, I mean, I I still got my fix. I could still you know do my thing, uh, and I became an alcoholic and a spice junkie you know, for the next three years while I got off, off of parole. Um, and then uh, the worst thing that could have happened for me was uh, I got off of parole because I had no leash. I had no, that you know, there was nothing holding me back. No accountability. From, from my ultimate escape that, that ultimately the, the addict, the, you know, the chaos between my ears, you know, wanted to kill me. And, you know, I, I, I eventually went back to a needle. I eventually went back to methamphetamines. And I lived a really slimy life for the next couple of years. You know, it was just hotel rooms in and out of, you know, living on the streets. You know, I went, I, I lived in Vegas for a little while. Uh, I even moved out to Maryland to try and escape everything to live with my brother out there. And I became a raging alcoholic there and went right back to Las Vegas. It was just, I, I could not escape myself. Um, and so, you know, I, I was taught a long time ago, you know, it's like what happened, what it was like and what it's like now. So, you know, I'd like to, you know, move into to some 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 happier times um, because for me, I got to a place in my addiction where I 
I was the person that nobody wanted around. I was running around with a crowd of people and I would get so weird uh, and, and just hallucinations and craziness and everybody was following me and all this weird stuff. And the people that I was with didn't want me around anymore. They didn't want, you know, I was asked to leave this environment of scumbags. <laughs> uh, when the scumbags don't want you around, that I, should be yeah, a red flag, huh? I, I, something hit me that day. And for the first time in my life, I became suicidal. And my solution to not being able to figure out life on my own, my solution was I was just, I was going to kill myself. I didn't see any reason on continuing this road. Um, and magically I, I, in my quest to go and find a cliff to drive this, uh, this, uh, uh, rental car off of, I ended up in an ex-girlfriend's neighborhood. Um, and she's also a pivotal part of the story because her and I met years before Dragon State Street. We reconnected and, uh, I ended up in her neighborhood somehow, some way. I, 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 I really think that it was just a higher power thing. I ended up in her neighborhood I parked the car, unloaded all my luggage onto her porch, knocked on the door. She told me to leave. She didn't want me there. You know, what are you doing? Get out of here. And I told her to call the police on me and charge me with trespassing because I didn't want to leave because something bad was going to happen. And I woke up. I fell asleep on my luggage uh, on her porch. And I woke up the next morning inside to her telling me to pack a bag and that I was going to treatment. I was going to rehab. And, uh, it was all about it, you know. What what what's the worst that can happen, you know? And uh, I I entered treatment that day, um, and for the first time in my entire life, uh, I experienced I experienced a, a team of professionals that loved me and that cared about me and that wanted nothing but the best for me. And um, it was the first time in my in a long, long time that I found a way to be vulnerable enough to unload unload Micah onto the table and, and ask for help, you know, ask for help. And I had a therapist and this is, this is a a big piece of it. I had a therapist, bless his heart. I love him very much. Still in contact with him this day. He said, Micah, your best efforts at life, because I was very frustrated. I was in a lot of shame for who I'd become and where I was at in life. And he said, your best efforts at this have gotten you exactly where you are today. And if that's not okay with you, Maybe it's time that you invite some people in your life that can help you. And that made sense to me. And another piece is he said, I want you to visualize the person that you are. I don't want you to have any judgment for him. I just want you to see the man that you've become. Just see him. Visualize him. Close your eyes. He goes, and and now I want you to keep your eyes closed and I want you to visualize the man that you want to be. Characteristics, job, you know, relationships. I want you to visualize the man that you want to be. He goes, now let's start to that start to transition you from that person to this person. Um, and for me, that made sense because when I saw the man I was today and I'm, I'm, I'm covered in tattoo prison tattoos from head to toe, you know, I mean, I, I, I really adopted that armor and that persona. And when I saw the person I wanted to be, I was obviously in an Armani suit with a briefcase, you know, and then, you know, whatever that look, you know, I, yeah. and I saw, but more importantly, it was, I was honest. Um, I was, I was, drug and alcohol free. And I, and I was, I was just living life. I was, I was breathing easy and, and I didn't have the same demons and slowly, but surely, um, over the last few years, I have, I, I have been able to 
recreate myself and just put down that old tough guy, that old drug addict, that old person that I had that I had turned into, you know, that old that 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 man that I had turned into. I saw it for what it was and 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 I was able to slowly but surely with a lot of mistakes, <laughs> I was able to, to create enough awareness about who I had become to start seeing my character defects and to start understanding where they came from and 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 just letting them go. Just this might be semantics, but um, I don't think you recreated yourself. I think you found your true yourself. Sure. You know, and I think that's what drugs and alcohol does. I mean, it, it takes us away from who we really are. And the addict mind is so powerful that it'll make you do things that you never thought you would do. It makes sense out of the insane. And uh, it's, it's just, it really is crazy. So because of this recovery center and this wonderful girl who let you sleep on her porch and drive you up to recovery the next day, you found sobriety for the first time at what age? First time, I was 32 years old. I was 32 years old. And um, yeah, I mean, I, I the lights the lights turned on. I... I, I for me, it wasn't so much. Uh, for me, it was it was just really good therapy. A lot of my treatment was not really revolved around relapse prevention and you know and, and the substance abuse. You know, uh, they did a really good job of kind of you know putting that aside for a minute and hyper focusing on what my core issues were, what it was that caused me to 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 fall into this lifestyle and to fall in this survival mode that I was in for so many years. And that's really what it was. I was just in survival mode. I think the general pro, uh, public has a kind of a problem understanding that. And we've had so many people on the podcast talk about this, that they go, well, meth is your problem or alcohol is your problem. Right. And you go to them and you go, well, yeah, I can see why you think that, but my problems are my problems. Mm-hmm. And alcohol and meth are my solution to my problems. And now that starts to become one big jumbled mess towards the end. But initially, for most people... I think that's part of understanding. I mean, we can't really fix something if we can't accurately diagnose and understand it, right? It goes back to reason and excuse. Exactly. And so if we can understand the underlying reasons why a person has become an addict, you know, what are the core, like you said, core issues... Um, and I bet there were several given the story you've just told us, um, you probably didn't understand those until you were in. And I like how you said, uh, how you talk about the therapist there, because that goes back to what we say on the show a lot, that the opposite of addiction is connection, connection, and they connected with you and they cared about you and they, but they were tough with you, but they, but that connection made you, I think, want to engage in the therapy and by understanding those core issues, then you can get past the manifest issues. The issues that everyone sees are are the drug, the drugs that you use, and the behaviors that come from the drug use. But the underlying core issues—that's that's the eight-year-old boy still inside who's who hasn't ever really found a healthy identity. Yeah, yeah. So at thirty-two, you're sober, um, and you're becoming the man in the Armani suit. <laughs> How does life go from there? Yeah, so um, you know, I, I I wish I could tell you guys that that was my last time using drugs and alcohol. Um, you know, and 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 this is this is a very important part of the story for me because I think that a lot of people that have experienced addiction and alcoholism can relate to this. When I got out of treatment, I didn't take 
an aftercare plan seriously, and I didn't. I I thought I was healed. I really truly thought that I I was never going to use again. It was thanks like, guys, appreciate yeah, it. Exactly. It was <laughs> like I it was like I was out of prison, you know. And and, and you know, you see this pink cloud, and, and life is different. And I was better physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually than I'd ever been in my whole life. Um, you know, and just thought that I was going to ride that out until I, you know, t- t- till forever. Um, and so I, I stayed sober for a couple of years. Um, and, you know, it, without working a program and without being uh, involved in something, uh, I, I was around people in recovery. I worked in recovery. And so, again, it goes back to the conversation we had offline is I thought that I, I thought my cover, my recovery was going to come to me through osmosis from everybody else working their program and just being around them was going to save me. Uh, but ultimately what ended up happening was I, I had a conversation with somebody who brought up the fact that they had some weed. It was my you know, guy that did some work for me at my house and he doesn't know my story. He doesn't know my history. And, um, I obsessed over the fact that I could go get high for, for a couple of weeks. Um, until the day that I called him and decided that I was going to go smoke pot. And I had, a, I had a number of other things that were going on in my life. Um, you know, uh, stressors, stressors, life. just things that were happening at the time. You know, one important thing about recovery is life still continues to happen. Not doing drugs and alcohol does not mean that, that life gets easier. It just means that you have more tools and you have a better way of interacting with, with those stressors. Um, so I went and smoked pot and, um, you know, hit it from my wife, you know, was, was lying and, and sneaking away and, and, you know, just being old behaviors, just very deep old behaviors. My wife found out, she asked me to leave. She wasn't going to do it with me anymore. Understandable. Bless her heart. I love you, babe. Uh, you know, and, and, and I left and once again, my mind, you know, the chaos between my ears decides that I'm going to go get meth. And I, I went and got a bag of meth and I went to Wendover and I stayed in a hotel room for four days and gambled a bunch of money. Um, and, and I had an eight, eight month old son at home. I had a wife, um, bills, you know, I mean, but, but none of that mattered. It, none of it mattered because my frontal lobe was completely hijacked, you know, by, by my addiction once again. And, I, I was coming back from Wendover. Uh, I found myself in at, in my mom's neighborhood, um, went to my mom's house, had nowhere else to go. And my mom, obviously understanding where I've been, she's in recovery. Um, she looked at me dead in the eyes and she said, Micah, you know, you know, you need help, right? Like, you know, that you, you, you need help. And, um, I immediately sobered up. I had a moment of clarity and I reached out to the treatment center that I went to. I reached out to the owner a man that I love very much and told him that I was out of control and I needed to come back. And he said, we've got a room for you. Come back tomorrow morning at 10 AM. And I did. Um, and while I was in treatment that second time, more shame that I'd ever experienced in my whole life. Because you'd got it all back. I, I, I had built a life. I had a good job. I had had my name on a house. I mean, I, I, you know, I, I was doing things that just, People where I had come from and with my background, just not very many people are able to accomplish that. And I was right back. I was, you know, it, it, you had started to become that positive figure that you visualized. Yeah. 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 And so, um, back in treatment, got on my knees, 
for the you know for the first time in a long 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 time didn't know really didn't really know what I was doing I remember just sobbing what do I do how am I back here and what do I do what is it going to take this time and um you know the, the the answer that I got was um for me I needed to go to meetings I needed to find a sponsor I needed to work the steps and I you know that was that was that was literally the voice that was in my head and I was not happy about that, if I'm being honest, you know, because I had done, I was you the guy. any other options up yeah. there? Because this yeah. one's not sounding good. I was the guy that, you know, I had, I had been to meetings. I had, I had, I tried that out and, um, quote unquote, it didn't work for me. Uh, and you know, I don't know how deep we want to get into it. You know, uh, Alcoholics Anonymous is, is a program of attraction rather than promotion, uh, you know, but but sharing my story, I think it's important to for people to understand that going to meetings, in my experience, was not the solution for me. Getting a sponsor, working the steps, working with other alcoholics, and staying in the middle of that program is what has worked for me. And as of today, how much sobriety do you have under your belt? I just celebrated three years of continuous sobriety from all mind-altering substances, April 25th, 2018. Congratulations. Nice. Yeah. That's, that's absolutely amazing. Yeah. 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 And deal. you've done it through action. And I think that's the thing to stress is that that um, a lot of support and help can be offered to a person. But I think what you're saying, and correct me if I'm wrong, is this, no, nobody can make it happen for you. All the, you know, There's a buffet of options out there to get sober. But it's the action that the person takes, him or herself, yeah. that makes the difference. And once you decided to really take that action and make it part of your life that's what's kept you sober would you agree absolutely uh it 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 takes a lot of willingness to 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 set aside um beliefs and ideas and 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 all of that other stuff because along the way i had you know as i talked about earlier i had adopted a way of interacting with myself in the world that just didn't work you know it just didn't make sense and it didn't work and so i you know it takes a lot of willingness to, to to set that aside and 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 try something new and and for me there was a lot of ego and a lot of pride that you know tried to take over um, you know and so it 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 was just a matter of of, of willingness um, to do whatever it takes and today today uh, I get to be part of the no matter what club because for sure today I will not pick up I will go to bed sober tonight <laughs> and that's all that matters for me. I like that. I've never heard that. And I thought we've heard most of uh, everything, but then no matter what club. I like no matter it. what. And no matter what, I won't pick up. Nope. And and, and uh, if I do that, and as you talked about earlier, recovery being number one, absolutely without question, if I don't have my recovery, I don't have anything. I don't have my, my marriage. I'm not a dad anymore. I don't have my job. I don't, I don't have anything. Um, but if I put recovery number one, I get to be a good dad. I get to be a good husband. I get to be a good employee, um, and I get to help other people. You know, which is which is just uh, for a guy like me is just is just magic. We should talk magic. about what you're doing now because uh, he's actually working for Ty Hansen, who was one of our first guests. Yeah, one of our very first. Yeah, at Steps Recovery Centers, uh, and so you're working over there now, mm-hmm. and. Uh, you know, I was talking to you when we were booking this to have you come in here that uh, the recovery centers are getting ready for a big influx of people because this coronavirus mm-hmm. has just created a perfect storm for mental health and substance abuse. Yeah, it's 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 been tough. It's been really tough because, you know, e- even the people that had lifelines that had a program of recovery, it, 
the rug was taken right out of underneath them when COVID happened. Um, you know, the connection you get from, you know, and, and I'll use, I'll use meetings. The connection you get from going to a meeting is unparalleled to, to, to most things. And, you know, not being able to do that and being isolated in your home. I mean, it's caused people a lot of, you know, a lot of mental health, uh, falling into addiction for the first time or, 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 or falling back into addiction for, you know, to, to self-medicate. It's, it's been tough. Um, you guys uh, have a detox facility out mm-hmm. in Payson, mm-hmm. and uh, I want to talk a little bit about the detox facility because I got a lot of people who call me and reach out on Facebook and want to know where to start. Mm-hmm. And, and I always say the detox facility is usually the best place to start because yeah. it's five to ten days, and then that'll give us an idea of being able to find you a bed, figure out where you need to go, yeah. and you do not want to detox yourself. I know people who have done it. Nobody recommends it, no. but alcohol is one of the most dangerous substances to detox from, and opioids and heroin, and this way you're doing it in the confinement of under supervision of professionals. Yeah, yeah I mean, de- detox is designed, uh, obviously, to, for, for medical stabilization, to make sure that an individual is healthy uh, and, and, and stable throughout the withdrawal process. Um, you know, alcohol and benzodiazepines can, can be very dangerous to detox from. And so, you know, it's really important for those two things specifically to have to have medical supervision. Um, you know, our detox is, is uh, you know, they're getting their vitals taken every couple of hours. We're, we're making sure that they are healthy and, and, and okay during that withdrawal process because it can be fairly scary. Now, Dr. Matt, um, like – And I don't know if you know this. Maybe you do. I'm sure Micah does because when I worked in the recovery world for a while, right out of recovery, uh, and I was on the front lines of people calling and wanting help, uh, there's there's the short window of when somebody says they need help. If you can't get them in there – the, the the brain will trick you into thinking, well, maybe we don't need it sure. or we can go there. So th- these are something that you should know about. If you've got a loved one who's battling addiction, know where the detox facilities are around because you get that moment of clarity, like you've said a couple of times in your recovery, where you went, yes, I do. Mm-hmm. And you don't know how long that clarity is going to last. Right. It's sometimes only minutes. Yeah. Um, but yeah, knowing detox is a probably the smart place to start we should do a whole episode on detoxing yeah i think we could have some people come in who run detox centers and talk about it what's your experience been with it micah so um my detox has always been from methamphetamines i've never uh, i've never had um i've never had a lasting addiction with 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 anything with, with anything that that caused me to uh, to need to detox from. For those who don't know, like because we'd have people who would call me and they were you know the, their DOC drug of choice was Adderall or meth. Mm-hmm. There's really no d- detox from that. You just stop using it. It's it, 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 if I understand this correctly. There are times where we'll bring somebody in that's detoxing from methamphetamines, and the reason why is because the aftercare plan is for them to admit to residential treatment and. We've got to make sure that they are running on their own energy sources yeah. before they enter the therapeutic community of residential treatment. So that's more of a, a glorified babysitter to make sure that you're here, that when we take you into the house, that you don't mess with the milieu and you're not completely whacked out. There's that. And it's also the health care piece healthcare. of it, right? I is, mean, is essential. Like Mike is saying, we uh, we really want a person to have um, uh, adequate health care, mm-hmm. have your vitals taken, make sure that you are hydrated and nourished and comfortable. Um, a lot of times when people try to detox on their own, 
They can trigger seizures, Mm -hmm. which can create a whole slew of other problems. And some people have uh, passed away and died during their uh, self-administered detoxes. So um, the University of Utah at the Huntsman Mental Health Institute is a great one. Is a great place. I went there. That's where you went. Um, You know, Steps has the place down if you're maybe in central Utah and you want to go to some place closer to home like Payson. That's a great place. And and there are a few others, of course, around. But wherever you live, uh, if you yourself or a loved one is struggling with addiction, a, a great place to start is look up where the detox, medical detox. Associate yourself yeah. around you. Yeah. Uh, what would you say uh, you learned most on this episode of Project Recovery, Dr. Matt? Well, as I mean, he's touched, <laughs> Mike has touched on one of my interests in psychology, and that's identity development. Um, you know, it's a very psychological term, and it so highly influences everything we do in life, how you think about yourself, who you believe you are, and how that process starts at such a young age. And so taking care of yourself, taking care of the people around you, and keeping in mind that these these young people are are developing their sense of self, and that determines the decisions that they're going to make. And so, you know, to me, I just, my heart goes out to the young person that you were to have to to have to be a tough guy, to have to be a stoner, to to have to have that be your identity. What a burden and what an obstacle that was. But I'm so pleased to see you sitting here uh, with good insight and positive energy. And obviously, you've overcome and developed a new identity. But I guess that's my takeaway is that identity, man, that's tough. That's who you are. And as for me, uh, I, I kept back going back to when he was young and talking about his normal now, Micah's normal was normal to him because that's all he knew. Yeah. To me, it seems anything but normal. Is that, and so right. we, we've got to have a better understanding. Okay, so you just opened the door for a question I wasn't going to ask, but okay. I, wanna, I think okay. I'll ask it. Yeah. Okay. So because we're kind of going back in your story now, mm-hmm. and you're, you know, Casey's bringing up what was normal to you, and that had to do with like your mom and family and everybody's sort of using together. Yeah. And, and you used sort of, I know it was, you know, in air quotes, you know, the cool mom. She became the cool mom. And I don't want you to feel it's Mother's Day coming up. Yeah, yeah. You love your mom. I don't want you to feel like I'm asking you to, yeah. to say anything negative about your mom. But what advice would you give? Because that's a dilemma that some parents who are listening to this show are going through right now. Should I be the cool parent? Should I let the kids come drink here? Because at least I know where they are. Let them come party here because at least I know where they are and I can s- sort of keep them safe. What would you tell a parent who's considering becoming the cool parent and letting the teenagers use at their house? You know, uh, I think what I would say uh, to those parents is, you know, you know, be be really just be the change, you know, be the change that you want to see. Don't normalize something that could negatively impact the rest of their life. Don't. You know, I, I love my mom. Bless her heart. We've had many, many conversations. We're obviously both in recovery, and we have a much different relationship today than we ever did. But uh, you know, I, I, I think that it's important for parents to understand that kids are so malleable that you know, you, you, one decision that you make can can 
impact positive or negative the rest of their life. I love that. Don't normalize something that could be a dangerous thing in their life. Keep the boundary. Yeah. Hold the boundary of, you know, this is what I'm willing to do. Even if it's, even if it's do as I say, not as I do type thing, you know, and I hate to say that, but that's the reality of it. Um, in, in my opinion. Yeah. Great. I like that. If people want to find more about steps recovery, where do they go? You can go to, uh, steps recovery.com. Uh, you know, if you, if you need help, you can call 801-465-5111. Uh, that's, you know, one of our admissions lines. You can also reach out to me on, on social media, but you know, you, you can find us. Steps Recovery is one of the largest treatment organizations in the state of Utah. We're, we're all over the place. Awesome. Hey, thank you for stopping by and sharing your story. And I guarantee it's going to help somebody out there. Definitely. Great. Thank you guys very much. That's what this podcast is all about. And don't forget, it's brought to you by our friends at knowyourscript.org. And once again, Project Recovery is a KSL podcast. of this program are for informational purposes only. The program is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician, licensed therapist, or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you've heard on this program. KSL does not recommend or endorse any specific tests, physicians, products, procedures, opinions, or other information that may be mentioned on the program. Reliance on any information provided on the program is solely at your own risk. It's the story of an American held in a dark Venezuelan prison. Then all of a sudden they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. I'm Becky Bruce. I spent a year working on Hope in Darkness, which now has more than 2 million downloads. Find it on kslpodcast.com or wherever you listen to podcasts.